The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and you all have to pardon my voice today. I'm in round, getting ready to have round six of 12 rounds of chemo. And one of the side effects is my vocal cords are swollen. So I know it sounds like a scratchy record, but uh, such is life. This morning I'm going to talk about not who, rather what, gets caught in and trapped by conflict. So not who, rather what, gets trapped in and caught, separated off by conflict. This is a poem by David White called Everything is Waiting for You. Your great mistake is to act a drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence, and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left your ar- their arrogant aloftness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Everything is waiting for you. If everything is waiting for us, then why do we feel so lonely and so separated and so alone so often? Why are we so self-absorbed in our thoughts and perseverating about what's going on with me? Conflict and all of our communication difficulties arise out of a fundamental project in which we are all engaged. And the important aspect of this project is it's what distinguishes us from rats. This basic project, and I'll come back to the rats, don't worry. Just want to keep you awake. (laughs) This basic project is that we try very hard to have and create and acquire all the pleasant experiences possible and avoid keep away all the unpleasant experiences. And I'm sure if you've been to enough Dharma talks, you've heard that before. 
Those are two of the three fundamental kalesas that the Buddha's taught that traps our mind. The third one is, we forget that we're doing this. We're deluded. We don't know that when we're upset because someone cut us off in the freeway lane, it's because we don't like that. So we get upset. We don't know that when we're walking down the street and we hear some baby cooing, that we like that, and we want more of that, that sweet, pleasant sound of a newborn baby. We're deluded that we are trying to shape our lives to our own preferences. And that's what distinguishes us from rats, by the way. If you put rats in a maze, and you put several tunnels in the maze, and down one of those tunnels you put cheese, The rats will go in and they'll go down the first tunnel and there's no cheese. They'll come out. They'll go down the second tunnel. There's still no cheese. They'll go out and they'll go to the third or the fourth tunnel and they'll eventually find the cheese. And when they come back in, they'll go through the tunnels again until they find the cheese and eventually they go right to the fourth tunnel and they find the cheese. So far, they're just like us human beings. We go for the things we want and we avoid the things we don't want. But if you move the cheese into, say, the second tunnel, the rats will come into the maze and they'll go to the fourth tunnel, no cheese. They'll come out, they'll go back to the fourth tunnel, still no cheese. However, the rats will then go down the first tunnel to look for the cheese, down the second tunnel until they find the cheese. We human beings won't do that. (laughs) We keep going down that fourth tunnel. Thinking the cheese is going to be there. It used to be there. Why isn't it there anymore? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you acting the way you used to act with me? (sighs) Obstructed by delusion and driven by craving, beings have wandered in samskara from the beginning of endless time. So we keep going down the same tunnel where there's no cheese. This is from Verses on the Faith Mind by Sin Stong, the third Zen patriot. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. To come directly into harmony with this reality, simply say when doubt arises, not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, nothing is excluded. Because we have this fundamental human project of going for what we like and avoiding what we don't like and being deluded by the fact that we're doing it, that creates the sense of separation in which we live. It creates the sense of aloneness and despair. Because we can't say not to, to what is present and alive in our life at the time. And this is how the Buddha taught that we 
create this sense of anatta, the sense of a separate individual self, which is in fact not a steady and intrinsic experience of life. It's something that we generate. I generate the sense of Daniel being a separate individual self by my likes and my dislikes and my preferences and by saying one instead of not two. Just this one. The teachings, by the way, if you're studying the sutras, come from the Honeyball Sutta. It's uh, 18 Majjaya Makaya. Majima Makaya, sorry. It's the sweetness of the honeyball, these teachings. And I have to pause and say that it's uh, quite an irony for me as the son of a long line of Southern Baptist ministers to be speaking to you at a Buddhist Dharma talk on Easter Sunday. (laughs) I just have to acknowledge that irony, and I thought I would uh, bring in a little bit of Jesus' teachings this morning in respect for that. I picked up a very interesting little book, which I mildly commend to you. Uh, It's entitled Jesus and Buddha, The Parallel Sayings, and it's edited by a religious scholar up in Oregon named Marcus Borg. And he comes up with three beautiful similarities between the teachings of Jesus and the Buddha. They both describe the way or enlightenment or salvation as a new way of seeing and experiencing life. Letting go of the old way of seeing, the old illusory way of seeing. Letting the, the veil over our eyes fall away and see in a new way, is the way Jesus described it. And secondly, both paths involve a similar psychological and spiritual transformation. Now, the Buddha constantly focused on clinging and how craving, craving including wanting what we want and not wanting what we don't want. That's just another form of craving and the delusion that comes from that. Craving is the source of our suffering and how we need to learn to realize letting go of this individual sense of separate self. And Jesus taught that the poor we should focus on, the least among us, and that those who wish to be first should become last, and those who want to be first will, will be last, and that those who empty themselves will be exalted. Salvation comes when you die to an old way of seeing, an old way of life. And so the Buddha's teachings of letting go of a sense of self and the Jesus' Jesus's teachings of dying to the sense of self are similar goals. And then third, the ethical fruit of both of those paths is an internal transformation where we lose our sense of a separate self and we become connected with and compassion have compassion arise for all beings everywhere. As you know, if you've been around IMC long, we practice the Brahma-viharas, the four mindful abidings, the compassion, the practice of opening our heart to all beings. And Jesus taught similarly, be ye therefore merciful or compassionate, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. 
And for those of you who are tracking, that's in Luke 6, verse 36. I checked it out in my Bible just to be sure. Interesting thing that happens to religions, however. When you look at the fundamental teachings of the great masters and teachers across all religions, their teachings began as esoteric teachings, inward practices, practices such as meditation, contemplative prayer, silence, retreats, fasting, movement practices such as yoga and qigong and tai chi, practices that still the mind and quiet the heart and turn one inward so that one develops the compassion to connect with all beings. But then something happens because those practices are hard. They required discipline. They required hard work. So almost all religions have a demarcation line where their practices become exoteric. They become outer-directed. In Christianity, at least in modern Christianity in the West, they have completely taken over Christianity. Buddhism has that split. Sufism in the Muslim world is the esoteric aspect, and then there are more outer-directed Islamic practices, and you can look at every religion, and the, the pattern is the same. When the exoteric practices become, then it's about how good I look, how much money I give, do I go to services regularly, do I have the appearance of being a good person, do I act like I'm kind, do I abide by some moral code. It's all about what I believe rather than who I am and what I practice. That's a fundamental break between the ancient esoteric teachings and the outer-directed exoteric teachings. And that fundamental break is really the source of our suffering. Because when we have that fundamental break, we are focused on us, how we appear, how we look to others. Did we show up in church and put a nice tithe in the offering place? Am I a good person? Jesus taught, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And the Buddha gave us a similar instruction in the Dhammapada. See yourself and others. Then whom can you hurt? What harm can you do? Hear the interconnectedness of both of those sayings. See yourself in others. Then whom can you harm? Whom can you hurt? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If in fact we are all interconnected, that for me is a way out of the tunnel with no cheese. But we cling to this idea of separation. We cling to the idea of a separate Daniel. Jack Cornfell in Wise Heart has written, What we take to be a self is tentative, fictitious, constructed by clinging, a temporary identification with some parts of experience. So what we take to be a self is our tentative, constructed idea of who we are. 
We make it up, in other words. We make it up at each stage along our life path. The things that we do, what we acquire, the degrees that we have, what kind of work we have, those are the accoutrements of the self that we are constructing. Rumi wrote, where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing here? I have no idea. This sense of separation causes us to focus on and develop this separate sense of self. And as neuroscience is now showing us, it's really an illusion because our bodies appear to be separate. But before we leave here today, we will literally have breathed each other in. Because for those of you who are neat freaks, cool it for a minute, this is going to freak you out. Our skin cells replace themselves at the rate of 100,000 per minute. So there are about 70 or 80 of us here today, so that's a lot of skin cells. And every time we take a nice inhale, we're breathing each other in. In fact, most of the dust in your home is your skin cells. It's true. Now, if we come to the place of realizing anatta, and we release this sense of an individual self, it's not the frightening denial of the marvelous, singular, and unique essence of every individual, as Jack further writes in A Wise Heart. Our uniqueness remains. Our uniqueness remains. But without the self-centered grasping and fear, We discover that our identity is more tentative. It's fluid, like a river. And think about your identity over your lifespan, how much it's changed, how much you have seen yourself change. That kind of fluidity. Each moment born anew. Wisdom says we are nothing. Love says we are everything. Between those two, our life flows. And we identify with so many aspects of our lives. The roles we play, wife, husband, daughter, son, father, mother, our work role. We identify with our personality. We identify with what we have, where we live. All sorts of things that we identify with. But unfortunately, in Time magazine, After a century of looking, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. That's in Time magazine. Could you believe it? (laughs) So these roles are just a concept. They're a concept that we hold, but they become our prison. We're trapped by them. I've certainly seen that arise when I got a call sitting in the bank parking lot, having just gone up to the teller machine to deposit my, uh, a check. And the phone rang, and it was my doctor. And he said, Daniel, you have diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That's a big moment in your life. And all of what I'm telling you about is distilled for me in that moment. 
could I and did I sit there and become the cancer and identify with it? Or could I and will I continue to practice what I'm teaching you today, especially so that I can hear it myself? So, I realized in preparing for this talk that I actually had an experience of this in my early days of being a yoga teacher, well before I knew what I was experiencing. And it's only in hindsight that I realized it was a sort of a pre-knowing. I was teaching at Kripalu, which if uh, some of you may have heard of it, have been there. It's the largest yoga center in the United States and has been for many years. Uh, probably serves 15 or 20,000 people a year. And at the time I was there, we had a guru named Amrit Desai, and he went through a big guru meltdown, and I helped proudly push him out the door. I was the general counsel who helped push him out the door. But before that happened, I was teaching, along with some other teachers, a workshop called The Heart of Relating. And we had about 150 or 200 people in the workshop. And it was the featured workshop for the week. And I had noticed a particular young man who seemed agitated and troubled throughout the workshop. And he didn't participate very much, but I heard that he was the brother of one of the cooks, one of the residents. So I just sort of watched him and nothing happened. The last night, on Saturday night of the, of the training, he was sitting near me, and when we were doing arti, if you've ever been to a yoga center and you do the ceremony of the light at the end, we were doing arti, I felt this presence beside me, and it was him, and he was trying to crawl up front, and I grabbed him on the shoulder and stopped him, and didn't think anything more about it. The next afternoon, Sunday afternoon, I was resting in my room, exhausted, as you might imagine, from a week of teaching. Excuse me. Honey and lemon. Really good. And a knock came on my door, and several of the residents said, Daniel, you have to come down and help us. I'll call him Joe. Joe just streaked the main chapel. And we've got him back in his room, but he is uh, really clearly agitated and has, uh, his brother says he has a history of mental problems, and we're trying to get him to voluntarily go to the hospital, but he won't go. So, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, I'm a lawyer. I know how to get somebody committed. But this was an entirely different problem. And I went down to the room, and it was a small, very much like the rooms at uh, Spirit Rock, if you've ever sat a retreat there, only smaller, and white cement block walls with a sink and a bed and a little bureau. That was about it. And when I walked in, Joe was uh, buck naked, and he was washing the walls with his jockey shorts. And he was 
in the state that one can imagine one would be if you were buck naked watching war walls with a jockey shorts at a retreat center in Massachusetts in the dead of winter. What do you do? What do you do? Because certainly in that moment, I felt myself very separate from him. And none of my hard, very hard worked on communication skills and relational skills, I couldn't think of anything that would work to do. So I sat. The Buddha taught that every experience that arises that we can possibly know comes through our six sense doors. Our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our touch, and our mental thoughts. There is nothing that we can know that doesn't arise through one of those sense doors. And so we have six ways of knowing. And then we have contact with an object, this handsome young man right here with the striking blue eyes sitting in front of me that I'm just falling upon looking at. And then the consciousness, the knowing of that object. So I have contact when I look with my eyes, and I know that object. That's the sum total of what we know and what we can experience in this realm of being. And of course, we recognize intellectually that our knowing through those six sense doors is inconstant. It's changing. If I knew this man over time, he would change, just as I've changed. The last time you saw me, for example, I had hair. But guess what? I don't have to shave anymore after 50 years, guys. <laughs> Can't beat it. <clears throat> we know that we change, but we don't know that we change. We resist the change, the impermanence. We resist it, and that creates stress and it creates disharmony in our lives. We think that we don't change. So I, Daniel, am a permanent fixed self. I'm the way I am and the way I've always been. What's wrong with you that you think there's something different about me? I am who I am. We have that illusory knowing that I am a permanent fixed Daniel. But in reality, the creation of the self and the creation of all these other selves out here is a moment-by-moment-by-moment experience. It is not a fixed, permanent experience because it is subject to anicca, to change. And our awareness changes. And how we see changes. And how we hear changes. And the world all around us changes. And the Buddha said, Is it fitting to regard what is inconstant, stressful, 
subject to change as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am. So the Buddha's question is, if you know that it's subject to change, if you know that that change causes you stress, if you know that it's inconstant, how can you possibly regard it as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am? But we do that. And the Dalai Lama said, if something seems obvious, but we can't find it anywhere, there's some delusion happening. (laughs) And the delusion in trying to find a separated, constant self is the fundamental delusion of our suffering. Now, here's how we do it. There are five ways that we do it. So just think about it. When I say, how old are you? We all know how old we are. That's exactly it. But actually, my thoughts aren't 69 years old. My breath isn't 69 years old. The cancer that's getting rid of, being gotten rid of in my body is not 69 years old. My body is 69 years old, but when I think about the way the cells change and how rapidly they do, it's not 69 years old either. So when we think about, I am 69 years old, we're thinking about being our body. We're identifying ourselves with our body. But then if I ask you, what color are your eyes? You know what color your eyes, mine are brown. So now... My eyes are brown. Now I'm not my body. I'm the owner of my body. Do you hear that distinction? I'm my body. My body's 69 years old. My eyes are brown. I have eyes. I own these eyes. These are my eyes. That's the owner of the eyes. And then think about your emotions or thoughts. I'm happy. So I've identified myself with my emotion. Or I could say my happiness or my suffering. Then I'm the owner of my thoughts. I'm the owner of my emotions. And then when we're really forced to think about where the self is, it's somewhere, you know, maybe about right here on this axis. Behind our third eye, down in our skull, it's right in there. The observer of it all. So, the five ways again are, I am my body, I'm the owner of my body, I am my thoughts and my emotions, I'm the owner of my thoughts and my emotions, I am the observer of all four of those. Those are the ways that we identify with and attach ourselves. For example, a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a family member who was very upset about her work. And she said, I'm someone who is always taking care of others' needs and not taking care of myself. I do too much and push myself too hard in my efforts to make sure those around me are happy. Now, some of you have said just exactly that. But can you hear how my family member was saying, I am someone who... dot, da, dot, da, dot, da, dot. Describing the self as if that was how she was permanently fixed. 
and instilling in her a belief that that is the way she is. So she is impelled to act that way even when it's against her interest because there's no mindful awareness between when times when the urge to act that way it matches her belief that she is that way, so she has to act that way, whether she wants to or not, therefore stress suffering. She can't change because she describes herself as being that way. So in reality, folks, we create the suffering self that we are. Selfing is a verb. It's something we do. We create it. Now, when we begin to learn to meditate, the purpose of our practice is to begin to create a bigger and bigger gap between all those thoughts of, oh, I'm so tired, I can't possibly sit. Oh, my body aches. Oh, I've been so busy, I've been doing so much stuff. Can you hear the description of myself that I'm doing there? And That's right, the delusion, that mind is at work as I sit. And whenever I sit, those thoughts are where I start. They're papancha, as the Buddha called them, the proliferating mind. The perceptions are proliferating. And as I sit, those thoughts begin to quiet. And when I label them and notice them and release them, I am releasing Daniel from being trapped by that delusional self. I create that space. I note it. I name it. And as we gain skill over time, we can see that the disturbances that arise, even when we're not meditating or in life, are simply thoughts arising. Nothing more, nothing less. And we don't attach an eye to the thoughts. We don't buy into them. And then we don't create this false sense of self. And how do we do it? We have to make a contribution to it. Some part of the passing show passes by and we reach out and grab it. A car cuts us off on the freeway. Or a family member gets angry at us, or our boss or a co-worker calls us in and gives us a report that's not good. We grab hold of the passing show, take it in, and call it Daniel. We have to do that. That's our contribution. We reach out and pick up some disturbance, some part of the passing show, And instead of taking a breath and saying, ah, criticism of Daniel is arising. Ah, Daniel's belief that he needs to take care of this problem is arising. Ah, interesting thoughts. A breath to create the space. And in the space, we can allow wisdom the interconnectedness we have with that other person, the relationship that we have with life, we can allow the wisdom to arise so that a clear choice, 
not connected with grasping and clinging to the illusory self arises. We don't create a self around it. And that's what I did in that little dorm room at Kripalu, looking back on it. I sat there for quite a while, breathing and meditating, without a clue what to do. And fortunately, having just taught this kind of stuff for a week, it was pretty fresh in my mind. I was lucky. And I recognized that I didn't know what to do. And I sat. And then, looking back on it, the weirdest possible action arose. And at first I thought, boy, that is the weirdest possible reaction. (laughs) And then the more I sat with it, the more it became okay with me. And I knew that there were people out in the hall. The doors don't lock because it's a retreat center. There was people out in the hall guarding the door. So I stripped. I took off all my clothes. And I took my white jockey shorts And I went over to the sink and I got them wet and I said, where's it dirty? And he pointed to a place on the wall and I climbed up on the bed and started washing. And I didn't say anything except every now and then I'd say, where else is it dirty? And after a while, he started calming. His energy and mind began to come together. And I noticed, I could feel the tension going and the stress going. And I could feel his suffering. It was really intense. And I was grateful to myself in that moment for having the courage to do what I did. And I said, so how long have you been feeling so upset? And at first he didn't answer. And then he paused and he said, well, I was coming down off a lot of drugs before I came to visit my brother and I haven't eaten in two or three days. And I said, oh my. And I said, where else is it dirty? And we moved to another part of the wall and I let time pass. And then before long, we had both sat and I was able to hop up when he was washing out his underwear and whisper out the door, get me brown rice and steamed veggies right now. And I sat down with him, and he began to tell me stories of when he had freaked out before and streaked the neighborhood as a child and how difficult it was for him. And he wept, and I wept. And he came more and more present. And the brown rice and the steamed veggies and soup came, and he ate. And the more he ate, the more grounded he got. And I was then able to, without convincing him, without urging him, just saying, don't you think it's best if you go to the hospital and get some help? And we don't want to cause a big ruckus for everyone here at the retreat center. Just let's walk out, you and I, to the ambulance and go to the hospital. And he agreed. How did that arise? By my not being Daniel. By not my 
being able to be in that place with him as he was, letting go of my mind and my thoughts of what to do and all that I knew and all the self that I imagined myself to be. I didn't know, as I said, what I was doing then. I really didn't. But I can see now that it arose from my willingness to just let go completely into connecting with him. So on this Easter Sunday, on this birth of spring, on this time of renewal in your life, I offer you from my heart, you are not alone. You are not lonely, except in the ruminations of your mind. You are not separate from those around you. The separation is your imaginary, created, individual self. Practice. Sit. Practice your meditation. Practice creating that space between those negative, destructive, separating thoughts so that more and more space can arise. And in the space of that silence, in the beauty of that silence, as David White wrote, everything is waiting for you. Everything is waiting for you. Happy Easter. All right. I feel that oh, one. Yes. It's not a question. It's a comment, if I may. Uh, I feel. I mean, I've been coming here for about fifteen years. Been involved with this group, and I've always felt like it's missing to not have some connection to Easter, on Easter or Christmas on Christmas or whatever. So I appreciate you doing it in a way that there is no separation, as you said. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm not even sure what the comment. I, I just my words. Um, the connection to mental illness and sitting or consciousness, whatever, just moves me deeply. Yes, yes, it does. And there's no magic bullet, and there's no answer. It just is. Yes, yes, yes. And we all suffer from it and the results of it, for sure. Thank you for your holding it. And yes, ma'am. Where, where can we find the David White poem? Ah, that's a good question. Do you know the answer, honey? W-H-Y-T-E, White, David White. Yes, sir. I just want to acknowledge your incredible communication skills, and thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So um, I wonder... um, how long can you can you do that? You you have uh, you have the fabric of your life, right? And the crazy person drops into it, 
and you can be there and you can you could go to the crazy place with him to to find him and meet him there which is beautiful how long can you how long can you keep that up sometimes sometimes the crazy people don't leave yes that's right that's right and that that question has a, a two-fold part to it. How long can you keep it up? Because sometimes the crazy person doesn't go to seek help willingly or doesn't leave and keeps coming back. And <clears throat> the most important part of the answer is the recognition that there are five ways that we create this false sense of self. By owning my, by identifying myself with my, with my body, by identifying myself as the owner of my body, by identifying myself with my emotions and thoughts. I am my emotions and thoughts. By identifying myself as the owner of my, I'm sorry, as the owner of my emotions and thoughts. And finally, that little self in there, the observer. So if I am so identified with being the owner of my thoughts, then I believe my thoughts. And when I believe my thoughts, I can act really crazy if my thoughts are crazy. And as someone dealing with a person who's mentally unstable, if I believe my thoughts, then if I'm a normal kind of person, my thoughts are very contradictory. I need to stay and help. I need to get out of here. So I'm caught between two contradictory thoughts, and I've identified with them. So I'm swinging between those polarities, and that is great suffering. So to find a place of peace, you must care for that connected, integrated self that you are with that person who's not mentally stable and find counseling and space for yourself so that some wisdom can arise between those polarities of I need to stay and help versus I'm being driven crazy myself. Find some place of help and support. That's the way to freedom. That's the answer to how long. Yes, sir. So, I'm not sure how to make this a question, but in my mind it is. Uh, it's, it's, about, it's related to the last question and, and your description of this interaction you had with this person we've called crazy and and I guess the the thing that strikes me about it is that in being crazy there's kind of a continuum of experience and ways of acting and at one end you're crazy and at the other end you're normal um, but we share the experiences Right. You do too much of what's at one end, then you become crazy. Right. But you have that experience. Right. You have those thoughts, and sometimes 
you act on them. Right. Um, it, it seemed to me that as you walked into that room and took your clothes off, you were kind of sharing this other man's space. That's right. And he recognized you as somebody that's sharing his space as right. opposed to the ones outside that aren't. That's right. Um, so we connected. And in that space, and I don't believe, I may have, and if I did, I misspoke and I want to correct it. I don't believe I called him crazy. I called crazy thoughts. That was, those were my, that's my distinction. And <clears throat> there is definitely a continuum in our activities. And society has placed markers. And as we all see around us, with road rage and all sorts of other similar behavior, those markers are not as clear and distinct. So we all share that discomfort and that fear and that anxiety when we're out and about. And we see the things that happened at Newtown and other places. So for me, that impels my practice even more to create for myself the only place of safety that I can create, which is in my own mind and awareness, to create that gap between being driven by my thoughts and having the space of wisdom to choose actions, as I was suggesting to this man over here on my left. That's what I can do. I can practice and I can learn to train my mind to create that safe place of safety in my own mind. That's what I can do. And as Jesus and the Buddha taught, the concomitant result of that is compassion. And I have greater compassion for the people who are having such difficulty and are so trapped by the crazy thoughts in their mind that they don't know that they aren't those thoughts. They believe they are those thoughts and that they must act according to them. That's the human dilemma that we have in this modern age. So practice and find your place of safety and know that everything is waiting for you in that practice. And thank you for your generous listening and your warm hearts that just... It's such a healing grace for me to come here. Thank you.